And welcome to this lecture, the first in a series, if we don't count uh, last week's introduction to this series by um, MEI director Michel Thio on the importance of the Middle East and the relevance of the region to Singapore. Today's lecture by Clemens Chai is no less timely. In fact, it's very, very timely on the geopolitical competition in the Middle East, the Gulf states and the competition for influence. We've seen basically since late last year, a whole row of series of steps uh, that on the one hand sharpened competition between Gulf states, but on the other hand sought to uh, reduce tensions across the Middle East. So we saw in uh, January, the Al-Ula statement, which put an end to the debilitating three and a half year economic and diplomatic boycott by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, as well as Egypt of Qatar. Uh, we've seen uh, before that the United Arab Emirates largely not completely pull out of the Yemen war. We've seen the uh, Saudi Arabia make clear that it was going to compete with the UAE on various, uh, in various fields. For one, it has been pressing uh, business that until now used Dubai as its regional hub to move to Saudi Arabia. And in the last 24 hours, uh, Saudi media companies like Al Arabiya have announced that they um, will be moving from uh, uh, their headquarters, at least, from Dubai to, uh, to, to Saudi Arabia. We've also seen, uh, I mean, and we've seen uh, a competition in religious soft power. We've seen Saudi Arabia start to talk about getting into the ports management business, a core business on the part of, of the UAE. But we've also seen efforts to tone down or in any case prevent tensions in the region and rivalries between on the one hand, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and on the other hand, countries like Turkey and Iran to try and ensure that these, um, uh, that these rivalries do not get spin out of control. So we've seen Iraqi sponsored meetings between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We had a summit in the last few days of Middle Eastern leaders in, uh, in Baghdad organized by the Iraqis. Uh, we've seen the UAE national security advisor, one of the most powerful men in the country, travel to both Turkey and uh, uh, Qatar in recent days. So all of this to say that Clemens's uh, remarks and insights could not be more timely. And I'm gonna yield the floor to Clemens. Thank you, James, for the introduction. And very timely indeed, because we just heard the news, as James mentioned, about Saudi TV stations, you know, moving back to Riyadh. The shift, of course, comes from the, um, you know, longstanding HQ in the Dubai media city. So of course, that's part of that whole long um, trajectory that we've seen since the start of this year about uh, you know, economic diversification and competition as well, which James also mentioned. So without further ado, uh, let me just share my slides with everyone. So the title of today's presentation is the Gulf States, the competition for influence. And 
of course, when I was tasked with uh, preparing this this lecture for everyone, um, you know, I was you know it was emphasized that contemporary developments should be made known and clear to the audience, and of course, this will be covered. But but I think the more important, I think, element of this presentation, in order to make it more rigorous and or, or provoking thought provoking, in fact, is to you know insert some kind of framework to our discussion and potentially for the Q&A uh, later on in, in, the, in, the, in the later half of, of our webinar. So, so what I'm doing here today is really, um, this is the outline of, of today's presentation. I, I'm going to talk a bit about regionalism because you know the Middle East is such a huge zone and we are talking about one sub-zone of it, which is the Gulf region today. And so regionalism, how, what is it about? What is the project about in, in the Gulf? Uh, and of, of bringing to you and introducing two other uh, concepts of supranationalism and intergovernmentalism, which I will explain later. And then we talked a bit, of, we will talk a bit about the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council and the six member states. And then we'll move on to cover contemporary developments in the Gulf and, and, and as far as possible uh, events that have taken place over the course of this year and last year. Um, and finally, we have a, you know, a, a short note on jockeying for whose influence. And, and of course, this context ties in with uh, the influence of, of the US and uh, something that has made the headlines this year also is China. Um, and But I won't cover too much of that because I know we have future lectures on, on these topics, which my uh, colleagues will cover them. So I won't go I won't dive too much into them. So let me begin with, with regionalism. Um, I will start by saying that, you know, um, UN, then UN Sec Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali in, in 1992 in his report uh, called the Agenda for Peace. Uh, and of course, that time, if you are situating yourself in a context where the Cold War just ended, uh, you know, the, the UN was, you know, met with a few crises in, in peacekeeping. And, and at that time, you know, one of the, one of the suggestions and recommendations by the SecGen was to say that, you know, in order to boost uh, preventive diplomacy, conflict management, there's a need to have stronger regional coordination. And, and in his report, he said that, you know, there are ways and means to strengthen the functions of the UN via regional arrangements, but also, you know, in the same report by the Security Council, uh, it was noted that there should be constructive relationships with regional organizations. And, and here, interestingly, among the organizations that were mentioned, there was no mention of the GCC, which was at that time, of course, nascent, and it was, was recently founded in 81, followed by the 80s, you know, having we are, we are having the the, the iran iraq war plaguing the region so so this was the context and if you look at this um, new york times uh, article from from back then and again is written by butros butros gali himself um, you see on on the right hand corner of your screen that he says the fourth challenge in this approach towards regionalism and what he calls new regionalism is that although regional entities can enhance the efficiency of the UN 
uh, efforts and responsibilities, you know, there are also problems. There are also limits. And, and he specifically says in the encircled area, it says those close to a problem and well equipped to handle it may also be too close to its living historical associations. In short, regional involvement may raise the old fears of regional hegemony and intervention. And I think that, that is something that's, that's highly relevant to, to our topic at hand today uh, because of you know, the, the 2017 to 2021 uh, Gulf crisis, Gulf blockade, which lasted for three and a half years. So historical associations, you know, there are also historical rivalries uh, and past uh, animosity, which may not, may or may not be resolved, these grievances. So, you know, when we look at issues that have come to the fore this year, for example, the Al-Ula uh, reconciliation, you know, we need to ask ourselves, have they really buried the hatchet? So, so that's what I wanted to talk about. And, and you know, as I've said, you know, again, you know, those living close or involved, directly involved in, in regional problems, maybe, you know, may, maybe, you know, in, in a vulnerable position, I wouldn't say vulnerable, but in a difficult position to handle conflict itself. So what is the importance of the Gulf, the Gulf states, the six states, you know, and, and this question is raised, you know, all over the place and, and also it's, it's also part of the debate between, you know, whether we are, should we support regionalism or globalism? And, and if you look at your screen now, you, you see that much of the literature on the contemporary Gulf has tried to portray the region as an exceptional zone. An exceptional zone, not only in the Middle East itself, in the wider Middle East, but also in the world. And, and of course, these kind of writings have recently been, been challenged by a new generation of scholarly work that attempts to say that you know, the Gulf is actually part of that global process, part of that global uh, capital flows, and not is is not you know um, mutually exclusive in that sense. So, one of the works which I listed in bullets here is is the strategic importance of Gulf energy that was mentioned by David David Waring in twenty eighteen in his book Anglo Arabia, and here, um, you know, he he argues that you know that Western countries are concerned about the Gulf, not only because of you know, certain specific types of transactions, but also because of the theme of energy. Energy here, and, and, and he says that national energy security cannot be disaggregated from global energy security, regardless of where you are. And in a global energy market, you know, if you are a consumer of energy, you are going to be affected by the price changes that are dictated by OPEC. And in OPEC, you have the Gulf states. So this is this is again something that that, that is an ongoing debate. You know whether we can uh, pull out and single out the Gulf as as an exceptional zone, or should we reinsert it back into uh, the global process. And, and if you can see, you know, as you can see here, this is one of the recent Forbes uh, table and article uh, ranking the top Arab sovereign wealth funds. And, and here you see that, you know, in, in the top 13, as shown in the, in the table, you see, you know, the Gulf ones stand out and, and they make up, you know, in fact, the majority of 
of, of this table. Now, in terms of um, politics, now again, uh, we, we run back to the, the strand of whether, you know, is it, is it, is it an exceptional uh, zone because of their own respective regimes? And, and, and here we, we talk about the idea of, of a monarchy. And here, when we talk about monarchies, you know, uh, and here, Sean Yom and Gregory Gauss, two Gauss scholars, have, have, have written that, you know, it seems that, you know, people have labeled these, the politics of the Gulf as exceptional precisely because they are still monarchies. But one thing that they would go on to qualify is that, you know, kinship runs deep in this, in this region, whether it's the ruling families or the merchant families. And this is how they work, you know, that the circuit of, of politics, of business are all intertwined uh, as, as an inter-family, you know, connected network. So, so now um, I'm going to proceed to, to talk a bit more about regionalism, but I won't go, I won't dive too much into it because of course it's very theoretical, but new regionalism, as I've said, the limits, I mentioned the limits earlier, um, you know, where, where, where there are states that could actually, um, you know, complicate the situation. Here, new regionalism in, in an academic context tends to look at, number one, interdependence. Number two, uh, multi-stream sectoral approaches. Uh, the growing role of non-state actors, especially um, NGOs, and how, you know, actors that are below the level of the state can actually influence these processes and policies. And, and here we bring in two concepts, supranationalism and intergovernmentalism. Primarily they are used for, you know, uh, understanding um, regional, uh, in, regional integration in the case of the European Union. But here we are gonna single it out and say, you know, how does the Gulf measure up? How does the GCC measure up when you're talking about these two concepts? So, in, you know, you, you, you look at the definitions here, but really, if I were to simplify in very, very layman terms, you know, supranationalism, supra meaning above the, you know, the state level, is that regional bodies are able, you know, you concede your sovereignty to regional bodies and regional, these regional bodies will make the decision on behalf of the state. So that's supranationalism. On the other hand, on, the, on your right side in the green box, intergovernmentalism really means that you know national interest comes first. Uh, they take priority, whatever the cost, whatever it is, national interest, um, you know, precede, you know, regional interest in that sense. And I'm going to be taking you through, of course, the contemporary developments. And it seems that the Gulf is slipping away into you know this this spectrum towards that the end of intergovernmentalism where national interests are you know national interests begin to be prioritized heavily as compared to regional interests not saying that regional interests are of no importance but where the gcc has to work you know usually is issue oriented for example for instance uh in the case of the pandemic in the early early months of the pandemic the health gcc health ministers met up you know to discuss ways of managing the health crisis but at that time, you know, the Gulf blockade wasn't resolved, but they were willing to meet up just to address the health issue. So I'm going to, I'm going to go through a few more other developments over the course of these two years. But, but again, you could bear in mind, you know, this, this continuum between 
on the one end, supranationalism, and on the other end, uh, intergovernmentalism. So whether it's the regional interest that, 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 that takes priority or the national ones that take priority. So now diving into our topic, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation States, the six states, as you can see on your screen, um, the body was established in 1981. So to this year marks its 40th uh, anniversary. And what is interesting is that the GCC charter focuses of, on economic, educational, and cultural cooperation with no mention of uh, political or security cooperation. But when I say this, you know, and I said that it was, its inception was in 1981, but a few years later, the Peninsula Shield Force, a uh, defense force came, you know, was, was conceived in 1984. And, and that was at, 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 the, at the height of the Iran-Iraq war that took place in the 80s. Now, um, if you're going to talk about whether this uh, PSF, Pen Peninsula Shield Force, was deployed and on what occasions, on which occasions were they, uh, was it deployed? It was there during the 1990 Gulf War uh, when, when Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait. But more interestingly, and I think more pertinently, it was deployed in 2011 during the Arab uprisings. And at that time, um, you have the Bahraini government uh, requesting for the Peninsula Shield Force, although later part, at, at a later stage, it was said that it was meant to protect national facilities. Now, the Peninsula Shield Force during the 2011 uprisings came into Bahrain. And um, at that time, it was Kuwait and Oman were hesitant about uh, deploying its own troops as part of this force. And it, it ended up being mainly uh, Saudi and Emirati troops involved. So as you can see, you know, when we're talking about, you know, uh, sensitivities, we're talking about national interests, we're talking about regional interests, you know, each Gulf state has a different perception of how it perceives a specific event or uh, problem. And if you talk about the GCC, again, there is now we just talked about one aspect of it, which is defense. And, and we talk about its inception, you know, uh, which actually omitted political and security cooperation in its charter. Um, one of the primary reasons for its inception is also of an ex external threat. And as we know, 1979 was, uh, you know, the, the Iran revolution, the revolution in Iran, right? So, so there was also, uh, you know, a, a, a threat perception outside of, well, actually, it's, I wouldn't outside of the GCC, but still within, you know, reach within the vicinity of, of that whole Gulf region, which is Iran. And of course, you know, um, and, and today this problem still persists. But I'll, I'll come to that later. Now, national or regional interest first. We talked about defense cooperation earlier. Uh, of course, you know, when we talk about regional integration, you know, financial systems are probably the easiest to, to facilitate or, or, or the, the area uh, area at which cooperation can be quickly uh, agreed upon. So in terms of economic integration of the GCC, as, as, as you have already seen in, in the last slide, you know, about, about the charter, uh, economic cooperation has progressed over the years, over the decades, in fact, and a common market was launched in 2008. 
followed by a customs union operational by 2015. But you know, attempts at a single currency was you know were derailed in the 20, in the 2000s. You know, it was proposed at the start of the that decade, but by the end of the decade, when uh, the financial crisis happened, uh, it didn't. Then there were there were disagreements over how this was implemented, and some preferred to to do it um, you know in in another method or another way. So in the end, that whole plan was scratched. But more recently, we have a pilot study on common uh, digital currency where it's all about uh, ledger technology and uh, blockchain systems. And I think my, my colleague Alessandro will, will, be more, will be more than familiar with this. But uh, the fact that this common digital currency, again, you know, which brings us back to the whole question of, of regional interests or do they want to work on a bilateral basis or national interests. So this pilot study on common digital currency was actually you know, uh, an idea that was uh, proposed by uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And eventually this study was done by both of them rather than as a region-wide initiative. And then you go on to look at VAT, the VAT, VAT framework agreement. Um, again, this agreement has, has you know, um, has, has been ratified, but at the same time, each of the Gulf states has taken its time to, to actually execute it. Um, of the six Gulf member states, you know, Qatar and Kuwait have yet to actually actually implement that, uh, despite you know the the, the the woes from the pandemic and the oil price collapse last year. And finally, on on debt support, um, on debt support, twenty eighteen, uh, during the debt crisis, um, there was a reforms package that cost about ten billion dollars. There was um, delivered to Bahrain uh, by the UAE. So again, we are seeing that you know, economic, on the economic front, there seems to be more traction and more cooperation done in that field. But at, at the same time, you know, there are states who want to do at their own pace, I mean, depending on what issue you're you are talking about. And finally, um, on the last uh, box that you see on your, on your screen, on energy synergies. And I'm just going to put one example out here because I believe we have a lecture on completely on, on energy and and this GCC when it comes to when we talk about the GCC there is also a GCC inter interconnection authority that was established in 2001 and it's a transboundary electricity network and this has this has gained traction over the over the 20 years or so and it has established a foundation in fact a regional foundation for a fully fledged electricity market, which of course some analysts say that now this has, has peaked. And finally, talking about more convergence at the economic front or questions of convergence, of course, the latest news is about the Saudi UAE spat in OPEC and, and that a compromise has, of course, has was been reached, as you know from the news. Um, what happened was that, you know, the UAE has expanded its production capacity. And we, we had a, a panel discussion on this hosted by MEI. The fact that, you know, that it was raised, this issue was raised publicly and, and that the dispute was, was being aired publicly was, was of course, you know, of course made the headlines. But, you know, many have 
many analysts have gone on, especially the economic economists and energy analysts have gone on to say that you no, know, this was going to be inevitable considering the direction of, of the Gulf economies in their diversification agenda. And the fact that you know all of them we are reaching peak demand for Brent uh, crude oil, and, and the fact that you know there's also a race for the market share. But I want to emphasize that the race for the market share doesn't only apply to, to energy, it applies to other areas as we have seen. Uh, earlier that James talked about, you know, that the latest news about the, the Saudi TV station moving out. There are other aspects of a market share of being a regional business hub, economic hub. And this is where the competition comes in. And all of them, since the start of the pandemic, have, have realized that, you know, there is a need to move forward and move towards the post-oil economy. That oil shouldn't shouldn't be but whether or not they can achieve you know of course it's still a work in progress and now we talk a bit more about oil prices you know last year you know there was oil price collapse to the point that uh, the wti even went uh, negative for the first time in history but currently it has rebounds has bounced back and and, and the price is, is hovering around 70 to 73 dollars and so of course that eases a lot of the fiscal and economic problems that, that the Gulf states face. But, but one thing is, if you, you were to compare this, you know, um, this price to early 2014 when it was 100, you know, there's, there's going to be a huge difference, I think, in terms of, um, of, of the, the, the money that comes in, the oil wealth that comes in. And, and there's a lot being said in academic literature about the rontier state, you know, the fact that, you know, the difference between the cost of producing oil and what you're getting from it. And that chunk, you know, helps you in, in terms of redistributing government subsidies, welfare benefits. Uh, and that has all along applied to the Gulf. And, and in terms of uh, what some may call performance legitimacy, where as long as these, these benefits, welfare benefits and subsidies are distributed, you know, then this will result in the, in, you know, in, there's no inclination for the citizenry to participate in, in politics. So that has been a debate ongoing, but um, with the pandemic, of course, last year, you know, these Gulf states are facing problems and, and fiscal problems. And if, if you just even just do a quick Google, you'll see that, you know, many of them needs to close the fiscal gap. They have a deficit to be closed. So in the long run, there's, of course, uh, long-term planning, even medium-term right now, to actually move away from, uh, you know, uh, oil economy, and in, and not only in terms of energy and looking at renewables, but also in boosting other areas such as tourism, uh, and and also being less reliant on a migrant workforce. And for some, it's going to be quite a stretch. Now, this is one example. Um, using the case of, of Saudi Arabia, Vision 2030, that was conceived by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Now, he, he has a roadmap of Vision 2030, and, and this includes a lot of mega projects, and he has done so. What has been done is really you know, a, a huge centralization of power uh, in order to execute his plans. And things have been done, such as curbing the powers of the religious police, uh, establish establishing different commissions and authorities for specific projects. A mega city such as Neom, if you, if you 
if you, if you look it up, it will be a futuristic city with no cars, things like this. Um, attracting tourism, both regular and religious, allowing more women in the workforce, uh, an emphasis on capital and doubling its size, and of course, a lot of movement in, in the sovereign wealth fund and investments uh, outside of, of the kingdom. Moderate Islam is also uh, being conceived uh, by, by the crown prince himself as, as in a bit to, you know, to convince his citizenry that you know, it doesn't clash with the long-standing religious belief in, in Wahhabism, and the fact that there's going to be entertainment cities and centers, uh, you know, these will not be a contradiction. So that's, of course, that's the whole vision that he has. And, and the roadmap so far, if you were, look, were to look at it from a 2020, the last program, that the last long-term plan, I guess, that he conceived, which was called the Saudi NTP, National Transformation Program, it was due 2020. And if you look at the metrics, you know, you realize that, you know, most of it, you know, they, they didn't quite hit their targets and unemployment rate, you know, still on the low, it needs to be improved. Uh, you know, the ease of doing business ranking and global competitiveness, you know, not up to speed. And, and perhaps this is why they are doing even more. And when they do more, you know, you know, this will result in, you know, more friction with its neighbors, right? So, so if you look, if you look at diversification metrics, and as I've said, you know, when, when everyone is moving in the same direction of diversification, there's bound to be clashes along the way and friction along the way. Now, the question then comes to where is the region's premier business hub? Um, so on, on, on this aspect, you know, many would say, okay, Dubai or Doha and up, up and coming, uh, you know, the, the, the cities in the Gulf. But now, as we've seen, the Saudis have, have made their move and the TV station is just one of them uh, on the trajectory that, that began even last year. Uh, there are plans, you know, plans have been announced by the Saudi government you know, that if you do not shift your HQ, if companies do not shift their HQ to, to Riyadh, then we will not sign contracts with you. And this, this, this announcement will, I mean, this uh, policy will take effect from 2024. And also recently, an announcement of a new Saudi airline uh, shortly following another announcement of developing the kingdom into a transportation logistic hub. And of course, Saudi airlines will have to compete with uh, regional giants such as Qatar Airways and Emirates. And finally, you know, of course, you know, when we talked about, we saw the metrics earlier, ease of doing business, global competitiveness, there is a concerted uh, strategy and of course, uh, you know, a financial package pumped in to, to double the size of Saudi capital and challenge is, is its uh, regional um, giants, as I've said, and also to, in a bit to turn Saudi Arabia into a global hub. But at the same time, we are going to be, we are, not, we are, you know, we are, we are likely to see that neighboring states will not rest on their laurels. They are going to work hard to retain that comparative advantage that, that they have established uh, so far. And, and we've seen the UAE coming up with this expo. We've seen uh, Qatar coming up with World Cup plan. And, and this also involves huge um, infrastructural development in transportation logistics. And, and these are some of the mega projects that, that now they, they have to compete for investors 
and also compete for, for money coming into the kingdom and also in the other Gulf states. Now, on geopolitics, um, on geopolitics, you know, we've seen uh, leadership changes uh, over the last uh, two years, this year and last. First, uh, we, the Gulf region has lost you know, two uh, important um, and, and also important balances, I guess, regional balances in, in, in the personalities of first Omani, the late Omani Sultan Qaboos, Bin Said in last year, January. And second, uh, the Kuwaiti Emir Sheikh Sabah Ahmed in September last year. So these two have, have played um, very pivotal roles uh, in terms of conflict management, mediation, shuttle diplomacy, for example, the Kuwaiti Emir was, you know, he conducted personalized shuttle diplomacy during the Gulf, Gulf blockade between Kuwait and the Gulf states involved in this blockade, but also with uh, the US in trying to, to facilitate the dialogue. Um, and then we have also, you know, the latest news, well, not so recent, but more last year about the Saudi King Salman with his surgery and aging King Saudi King Saud, and of course, the de facto leader in the kingdom right now is his, his son, uh, the Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman. So again, that raises questions on what happens next during the succession or after the succession. And finally, uh, a new crown prince and prime minister in Bahrain, uh, Salman Mohammed Al Khalifa, um, after the the passing of his his uncle, who was a you know long standing uh, government figure. Now. Over these two years, this year and, and last, and the last, uh, we've also seen you know, attempts at re-injecting vitality in the government agencies, you know, with fresh faces, new personnel, but also the streamlining of government agencies. And one of the things that Oman Sultan Haitham did after he had come to power was to make everything more efficient. And, by, and in doing so, he, he streamlined government agency, he changed a few faces, uh, and, and, and he brought in a, a new foreign minister. And, and also we've seen you know, diplomatic reshuffles in the UAE as well, earlier this year, February. And it seems here as well that you, know, you see a younger generation being brought to the fore. And we see Sheikh Shabut bin Nayan bin Mubarak, who is the new uh, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs in the UAE, replacing uh, Dr. Anwar Gagrash, who has been a long-standing figure, again, another long-standing figure in, in UAE politics. And now he's the advisor to the president. So we see, you know, some changes in faces in, in the region. And, and, and despite, you know, a lot of talk about policy continuity, you know, there's obviously going to be some tweaks here and there when you have new faces, you know, inevitable. But at the same time, we see that also that as far as possible, they try not, you know, the Gulf states, um, you know, try not to provoke any um, uh, regional disputes, especially after the um, January reconciliation at Alula. Now, as I just mentioned, Alula agreement. Is the reconciliation that took place earlier this year that, of course, resolved uh, the Gulf blockade that was between the quartet of Egypt, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, and against 
Qatar. So this three and a half years blockade ended in, in a face saving measure, I would say, um, when it was, was uh, situated, it was hosted in, in Riyadh, well, in Neom, really, and, oh, sorry, in Aula, in Saudi Arabia, where you had to fly in the, you know, the rest of the head of states into the kingdom. And there was a public show of embrace between uh, the Saudi leader and the Qatari Emir, uh, sorry, de facto leader and the Qatari Emir, upon his disembarkment of, of, of his plane. And of course, you know, when we are talking about what has happened since then, uh, you know, each Gulf state has taken, you know, the ones involved, especially the ones involved have taken, uh, you know, steps at their own pace. For example, um, the UAE mentioned that, you know, a spokesperson mentioned that it's going to be a new dialogue without further mentioning, you know, without giving other details. Bahrain has sought to meet uh, Qatari officials on a number of occasions, but, you know, uh, these, the, the, there has been no response so far. So you see that, you know, when we talk about uh, supranationalism and intergovernmentalism and whether national interests precede regional ones or the other way around, you know, we see that, you know, you know, we see increasingly clear that, you know, are, that, that these Gulf states are taking things at their own pace and especially on a bilateral basis. And what this episode of the Gulf bloc has taught us is that, you know, Qatar has emerged stronger, uh, in fact, unscathed from, from, from this crisis. Uh, they have over the course of three and a half years of the blockade, they actually, you know, hasten developments in their port, they hasten uh, developments in food security, which also cultivated a sense of nationalism or patriotism to like uh, within their citizenry. And the Abraham Accords, of course, um, that, that James also mentioned, uh, is another move of repositioning, um, especially, and it's led by the UAE in these efforts. Of course, um, the UAE joins uh, Egypt and Jordan in, in, in the ranks to normalize relations with Israel. And then other states have, three other states have, have followed suit, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. But at the same time, I think if you had tuned in to one of our events on this topic, you realize that um, one of the speakers mentioned that uh, despite this official normalization, uh, there's two horizontal lines in parallel to each other, that one is the official line and one is under the table. And the fact that, you know, before these Abraham Accords happened, there was already, you know, unofficial um, links and cooperation you know, in specific issues, uh, whether, whether it's cybersecurity or otherwise. Now, of course, jockeying for influence, but whose influence here is, is the question. And I won't go too much into this because on US and China, we both, we, there will be a lecture each on, on these two external powers and the, the roles of external power in the Middle East. So, but we, what we can see, of course, is um, so far, you know, we've seen um, the, the events happening in Afghanistan and of course soon in, in, in Iraq ongoing, uh, the withdrawal of, of US troops, which, which, will, which has caused complications in, in the Afghanistan episode, which will be addressed tomorrow in another webinar. If you haven't, then do sign up. But also, you know, it, 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 caused complica it causes complications because of how 
players in the region perceive the US or perceive US withdrawal. So some have, have argued that you know, the US should be actually right-sizing its forces or resources rather than downsizing. And, and that's been, uh, that's been uh, a debate that has been ongoing uh, among analysts at the minute. Now on China, of course, uh, my colleague Alessandra Arduino will be, will be covering uh, Taming the Dragon, I believe the, the lecture will be titled. Is that China, of course, this foreign minister visited, did a Middle East tour earlier this year. And out of it, of course, came uh, much hype around uh, the China-Iran deal. Um, but really, you know, that whole Persian Gulf strategy that China has adopted, besides, you know, that whole talk about PR, BRI, the long-standing talk about BRI, is the fact that the UAE has surfaced, has come to the surface as one of the leading states in, in, in China's strategy. And, and one of the deals that was signed during the well, post-visit was on, on the Chinese vaccine and, and having a regional production hub in the UAE for the production of Sinopharm. And so, you know, these are developments that we should be aware of and how and whether the Gulf states are reposition, repositioning themselves in order to draw the attention of external players, external powers, whether it's for investments, um, whether it's for other areas of cooperation, you know, that, that has to be seen over uh, the next few years. And, and the fact that, you know, we are also seeing, you know, uh, foes of yesterday becoming friends today and the latest UAE Turkey call is, is one of them. And, 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 you know, despite, you know, their differences in the past, especially on, on ideological concerns, um, but also, you know, during the blockade where, where, you know, sites were taken. Now, softer aspects of influence, I guess, um, will be in the form of, you know, green in initiatives, you know, to, to, of course, some, some might call it a, a PR, PR campaign, Saudi Arabia, announced uh, the Middle East Green Initiative uh, with the aim of planting 50 billion trees across the Middle East, starting from the kingdom, and also with a call with, uh, with China, with Beijing, and gaining their support on, on this project. Uh, the UAE has moved on to, to explore uh, Mars and, and in a space mission last year. Uh, further digitalization is on the cards, and finally, of course, because of the pandemic, R&D in health aspects and vac vaccine diplomacy is also very much uh, alive at the minute. Now, so I've talked a bit about contemporary developments. I, I've started with the more theoretical approach and, and I'm coming back to that whole theoretical approach. So now after you've seen what has been described, explained, you know, um, how do you see the GCC in, in the end? course everyone is going to have their own take but at the minute if you look at the con contemporary developments and if you are to measure it between supranationalism as a regional but a proper regional body with the EU being a you know, the model that 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 many would like to emulate or an inter intergovernmental region where national interests precede regional ones so the answer well at least my answer is that you know with the legacy of the 2010s, whatever happened across the 2010s, the blockade um, twice, in fact, the crisis that happened erupted twice, 2014 and 17, 
the Gulf or the GCC as a regional project, you know, remains highly intergovernmentalist entering the 20th. And I've given you examples of the fact that, you know, the, the Gulf states have approached relations with neighbors on largely on a bilateral basis. And even when there is a regional project, you know, many prefer to do it at their own pace. Some prefer to quietly snub the other. You know, it depends, but, you know, by and large, it seems that mutual interests are likely to be issue-oriented as number one, and number two, based on urgency. And that's in the case of the pandemic and health issues. And the fact that all of them are picking up the pace on diversification policies and means that there are bound to be clashes on the economic front since everyone is trying to move away from that, uh, on being reliant on oil. And I will end off by, by reiterating um, these three terms, sovereignty, capacity, and hegemony when it comes to regionalism. And, and, and the logic of these three terms really is that, yes, there's so much about national sovereignty, sovereignty meaning that the state has authority across its defined border, borders. But when it comes to regionalism, you, know, you need a sense of willingness on the part of the nation state to either to renounce you know, parts of its sovereignty or to agree to the requests of the other member states or neighboring states. So there needs to be a capacity to accommodate or even be willing to accede to others' requests. So even then, even then after we are past the stage of willingness, you know, hegemony, because the bigger states in the regional grouping might want to play a bigger role. And, and in such cases, you know, there are going to be winners and losers. So with that, I conclude my uh, presentation and I'm happy to, of course, take questions. Over to you, James. Uh, can everybody hear me? I hope so. Yes, uh, yes, we can. Clement, thank you. That was a really useful overview. Uh, I've, I was remiss, and in fact, the audience was far better than me, uh, remiss and before Clement started to speak, advising that we would really appreciate if you uh, pose your questions at whatever time you wish to do via the chat function, and they will, I will either see them or the uh, events management people will pass them on to me. Some of you have already done so. Uh, I have a whole list of questions for, uh, uh, for Clements, but I want to give people in the audience uh, a pri uh, priority. And I'm going to go through some of the questions that have already been posed, not necessarily in the um, order that they were submitted, but hopefully everybody will have their chance. Uh, Ankur Gupta asked two questions. I want to ask the first question first and come to his second question later, which is the regionalism versus globalism debate is also relevant for ASEAN. Are there lessons ASEAN nations can learn from the GCC, both positive and not so positive? Clements, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Thanks, uh, Anu Gupta, for the question. Well, um, of course, the, the, first, the first part of my answer is that, you know, <clears throat> both regions and regional compositions are different. And, and the political asymmetry, you know, that, that is present uh, in the two regions are equally different. And, and if you know that, and if you are aware that you know ASEAN you know has tended to to pivot towards a policy of non-interference 
and, and of course consensus as well. Uh, there is you know a, a perception that it's, it's a more intergovernmentalist organization. Um, but the fact that ASEAN has, has managed to sit down uh, together, and of course, a lot of scholarly works have written about, you know, whether this, this organization runs the risk of being a talk shop, the fact that they are able to actually have constructive uh, dialogue, not only between themselves, but also um, with external powers, like the ARF, with, with, through platforms such as the ARF, ARF Plus 3, uh, ASEAN Regional Forum, um, you know, means that they are, you know, functioning effectively as an intergovernmental List organization. So, if you're talking about um, lessons learned, I would say that you know um, the whole consensus. Uh, I think the GCC would do well to 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 learn from ASEAN. You know where where there, where there needs to be consensus uh, and to talk things through. I think these needs to be done on 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 on, on platforms, whether on neutral ground or not. But these has to be these have to be sorted out. You know, heads of states need to, to come in together to talk about these issues and resolve them together as, as, as a whole. Thank you. Uh, I want to take a question from Sharukeshi and somewhat put it in a broader, uh, a broader uh, uh, perspective, if you wish. And that is, I mean, you, you've spoken rightfully so about the resource richfulness of the Gulf when it comes to energy. What you haven't spoken about is the research, resource poverty of the region. For example, when it comes to water issues, agriculture, food security, these kind of things. Uh, and Charukeshi is basically asking whether you could address that. Yeah, on, on resource issues, and of course we talked about resource, which resource is rich. And of course the, the glaringly obvious one is, is oil and gas. Um, but in terms of you know water, that's been an issue. Uh, there's, there's been long-standing, um, and and there are there are there have been initiatives in the Gulf to tackle this, but I think they are moderately successful. Whereas for food security, I think this is has been uh, this is the one that they are focusing on right now. Um, uh, after after Qatar you know, um, has has done so during the blockade years, uh, this has now. The other galaxies have now set their sights on, on food security. The UAE has, has now a new food standard system, um, accredita accreditation system for, for food. Um, uh, Bahrain recently concluded a nationwide forum on, on this issue on, on food security, where they brought different stakeholders together to discuss uh, you know, means and ways to improve the, the, the food situation in, in the kingdom. So yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think that's as far as I can I can comment on. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Ankur uh, also asked about uh, the fact that the Gulf states have avoided uh, what is called the Dutch disease. With other words, uh, being resource rich, having a significant uh, uh, revenue stream from that, and mismanaging the uh, the use of those funds for the development of the country. Uh, and Uncle goes on to say that you know that was an, an issue or that is an issue in countries like Nigeria, Venezuela, and Indonesia, Malaysia. Uh, and what what and the question he question he's asking is why was the why were Gulf states able to avoid the Dutch disease 
And is there a governance model that they have that uh, is maybe better than that of other, uh, other oil, oil rich countries or resource rich countries? I mean, have, have they really been able to avoid the Dutch disease? I think that that is the, my first question because, you know, when, when the pandemic hit and the oil price collapse happened last year, you know, they, most of them realized that, you know, they have very inflated public sector and the fact that, um, you know, wages are being paid to um, citizens in the public sector, working in the public sector, or even overly paid. And then they found it difficult to reduce these wages. Um, and the fact that, you know, that when they wanted, when there was a lot of insecurity at the, at the start of the health crisis and the fact that there was an expat exodus that happened shortly after, you know, there were again questions hanging on, on to whether they should, the Gulf states should bring back their expats and also whether they need migrant workers. And for, for countries like uh, Qatar and the UAE, with only 10% of, of the national uh, nationals in, in its population uh, and also with with uh, mega projects on the horizon they, they will have no choice but to bring in bring bring back the low uh, bring back the migrant workers and also expats and and i think another aspect of it is about a brain drain that the fact that you know you need talent that comes from outside to train uh, nationals and that's the start there's always the start of phase one if you like of, of this process and it's sort of teaching the teaching the man to fish so that he can fish for himself. So I think that's a whole conundrum that, that they have been caught in, you know, despite having oil and gas, despite being rich in oil and gas. So I don't think they they are, you know, um, they are in, they are free from such problems. In fact, right now the fact that they are moving ahead with these policies show that they are they are increasingly concerned about managing uh, resources and especially. Uh, in the public sector. Uh, let me tack on a related question again from Ankur, who basically is arguing that uh, the Gulf states, UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, have been relatively good in avoiding tensions between uh, an expatriate or foreign national community and uh, a local uh, citizenry. Uh, in in comparison to uh, Southeast Asian countries, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, and Singapore, where there have at, at times, where there has at times been an anti, some degree of anti-foreigner sentiment. And so the question is, why haven't we seen that in the Gulf? And what is the Gulf doing that, that Southeast Asian states may not be doing? Why haven't we seen tensions erupt between the national and non-national populations in the Gulf. I think, um, you know, it's not that there haven't been tension, there have been, uh, but the fact that there is a, that there's an implicit hierarchy in place and also an institutionalized hierarchy in place of a kafala system, which is a sponsorship system that now a few of the states have tried to alter. The fact that you have such institutionalized, um, you know, national versus non-national system plus an implicit uh, you know, uh, recognition that who is the paymaster and who is, who is the one receiving the money. You know, you know when there is such employer-employee um, you know, relations in that sense, you know, it's going, always going to be difficult to raise your concerns. And, and one of the ways that, you know, has been that, that, that have you know, brought the problem um, 
to the to the public eye is through NGOs, and and these are these are the ones that have these are the organizations that have attempted to resolve, if not uh, alleviate some of the um, um, pressures on on migrant workers who either you know you know do not receive their pay or receive their pay at, at a later stage during um, the, the health crisis, uh, or even they are being trapped in, in poor living conditions. I think these have been um, brought to the public eye by NGOs and also journalists who are on, on the ground. So it's not to say that, you know, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's, there's no tension, but the fact that, you know, when, when it comes to the signing of MOUs, for example, and, and, and in relation to labor agreements between the Gulf states and the sending Asian states, there's always going to be, again, power uh, asymmetry uh, in this in this aspect and, and um, eventually after much tussle there's always going to be uh, for example you know sending your workers back home for example and that was in the case you know at the start of the of the pandemic when we see when we saw um, you know, a few comments being exchanged uh, from specific Indian states and and uh, and and Gulf authorities so so in the end, who came out tops is who came out tops is is, is the Gulf states and the Gulf uh, governments and but again you know it, it, it seems that there's also a part of the citizenry that is being aware of such um, of such injustice on the ground and they have voiced their concerns that you know you know for example a vaccine issuing a vaccine should be based on an equality slash humanitarian agenda rather than a case of national versus non-national agenda so i mean it's, it's it's quite a complex situation but you know with 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 an institutionalized system in place of, of the kafala you know it's very difficult to root out um you know um, discrimination in that sense thank you um jonathan asks as the world desires to go green and lessen their dependence on middle eastern oil do you foresee the Gulf states being capable of banding together to maintain their influence so that their control on the world, uh, or to maintain their influence that they get from the world's oil reserve, uh, being uh, uh, in control of the world's largest oil reserves? Whether or not they will band together, um, you know, with these uh, new green initiatives, um, I think. We had we had an event on this, and and of course, um, you know the, the 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 comments and remarks by the panelists at that time was that, and these were energy specialists, energy experts. They were saying that, you know, each of the Gulf state has an agenda to not only improve its own production capacity, uh, to also acquire a bigger portion of the market share, but at the same time, because of that whole diversification agenda they need to look at alternatives and one of the one of the aspects that were there were that was brought up was on hydrogen and the fact that you know there's blue green and gray uh, hydrogen green and there's there are complications in, in producing or even moving towards a hydrogen economy as as per the comments of the energy experts but the fact that each of them has a vision or strategy to improve or enhance their own uh, 
respective energy market shows that, you know, probably at the bare minimum, you know, I think uh, in terms of uh, as what we saw in OPEC, you know, that's probably the one area that they can cooperate. But in terms of when they were, if they were and when they are to diversify their energy sectors, you know, they are going to go ahead on their own, you know, in individually or even in certain cases bilaterally, especially in gas, for example, uh, between the UAE and, and Qatar, which had a pipeline that, that was ongoing during the blockade even. Um, but in areas where, for example, they have co co comparative advantage, such as Qatar and gas, you know, they're going to push ahead, you know, uh, with their own vision because that's what they have and they want, they're going to make the most of it. Okay, before I go to a question from a participant from Indonesia, I want to actually ask a question of my own that relates to all of this. And that is, it strikes me, I mean, if I uh, listen to you correctly, you were suggesting that basically the fundamentals of the economic diversification mm -hmm. in the Gulf are uh, among the Gulf states uh, interrelated, or in any case, very similar to one another. Uh, and I wonder whether that is really true, given that on the one hand, we see um, very different commitments in practice, maybe not in statements, to a move towards uh, renewables, uh, with maybe the UAE being most committed to that, and Saudi Arabia making the most statements, but doing the least in practice. Uh, but more fundamentally than that, it also strikes me that you're seeing very different strategies towards diversification. And in fact, you're seeing Saudi Arabia and Qatar uh, uh, in some ways doing less uh, diversification or in any case, not shifting truly away from dependence on oil because they're banking on oil and gas, certainly Saudi Arabia on oil and Qatar on gas for the foreseeable future, given uh, that they think that, that that's where they're gonna have the strategic advantage as the West and other countries emphasize uh, uh, green energy. So, uh, the, so the, really the question is whether, whether, to, uh, uh, whether or not we're seeing very different diversification strategies rather than very similar diversification strategies. Whether we are seeing, I mean, yes, on, on a broader level, um, yes, they are, they, they are you know, on that diversification path whether or not they have different diversification strategies, I think each of them are playing to their strengths. And in some cases, you know, when two countries have similar strengths or they are involved in a similar project, that these, then this is going to have, uh, you know, produce some fr friction. And if you look at, uh, for example, at the minute, what is novel, I guess you could say, is uh, religious tourism in, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia has all along um, pride itself as a religious pole of the Muslim world. And the fact that they have so as well, you know, religiously governed that, that aspect of, of, of the sphere between the religious versus non-religious sphere. And now that they are willing to cross that border and in this kind of project, you know, we don't see a similar one uh, in, in the rest of the Gulf states. And, and for example, um, in comparison, Kuwait takes no interest in boosting its tourism sector at all. 
And of course, if you were to talk about tourism, regular tourism per se, then yes, then this is going, there are going to be clashes in this aspect. For example, as we see in the airlines, you know, transportation developments. And, and, and when I say this aspect of regular tourism, I guess I'm, I'm pointing at uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, and the UAE at the minute. You know, they are all striving to, to gain ahead of, each, of one another. So, but for example, and as you said, that whether there, there are the different diversification strategies, yes, there are, but on, on, on a broader level, I think you know, um, they are moving in, in a very similar um, trajectory. It's just that when they, when they clash, it's always in one specific aspect uh, where, where they meet in the, in the middle. And in others, it could be they are the they are the pioneers of, of that, and, and and I think the example that I mentioned sort of explains that. Yeah. Thank you. Let me uh, pick up a question from um, Alfred Febrian Basundoro from Indonesia. His he has two questions. Uh, how did the project of Gulf of Gulf of a single Gulf currency, initiated by Saudi Arabia, fail in two thousand? And his second question is. How did the Gulf states, or how did the Gulf, what can the Gulf states learn from the Alula agreement and the blockade of Gaza? Has the blockade hurt the Gulf economies? Well, um, on the question on um, single currency and how it fell through, um, I mean, there wasn't a consensus. Oman pulled out first, uh, right smack in the middle of, 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 the, of the process when. Uh, the Sultanate withdrew from from the scheme from the scheme, and after that, it effectively um, came to an end when the UAE also pulled out in two thousand nine. But in the middle, uh, the proposed monetary union, you know, was ultimately you know um, derailed by disagreement over the location of the GCC central bank, and also economic pressures of um, you know fine tuning and aligning monetary policy at a time when. There was also US dollar weakness and double digit um, inflation. So that's the first part. That's my first answer to the first part of the question. On um, the Al-Ula, uh, sorry, James, could you repeat the, the, the second part of the question again? Sure. How the Gulf states could learn from the Al-Ula agreement and the blockade of Gaza? Has the blockade hurt the Gulf economy? Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that, that the Gulf states should learn is that, you know, the fact that they have been able to remain resilient as monarchies. And I think I mentioned it at the start of the, the lecture that, you know, they, they seem to be the exception to the normal types of political regimes and systems. And monarchies, are, you know, are not very um, common these days. You know, the fact that they have been resilient, I think what they've got to learn is that, you know, when I think one of the uh, aspects that stand out for me is that, they have been so interconnected by kinship. So being interconnected by kinship also means that there are, there's always going to be some sort of uh, brushes with one another, whether it's a rivalry or whether it's a dispute on a specific island in the past. Um, you know, take, take Bahrain and, and Qatar, for example. Uh, you know, they have a historical uh, problem of, 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 the, of the little town of Zubara where you know, both have laid claim to this uh, little town, and there's on been ongoing, um, you know, uh, 
I guess, reminiscing of this, this dispute from the past you know, every now and then. And this sort of, you know, when, when, when things are being considered in, the, in this context, um, that the fact that they have inter, interfamilial ties uh, between their ruling families, but also within and between their respective citizenries, you know, they need to be very worried about and careful about not blowing things out of proportion because this will simply um, dribble down to its populations and citizenry and affect people, not only the, the movement, uh, the movements of and mobilities of, of people on the ground, but also relations. And I've heard uh, a lot from uh, my girlfriends who mentioned that during the blockade when you know there were certain family occasions, whether it's the death of a family member uh, or relative in another Gulf state, they were not being able um, to, to travel as one. And, and two, this was being perceived as a political problem. And I think, I think, you know, going forward, I think the Gulf state should really be you know, aware that you know, it didn't do them much good to be involved in that whole rupture of relations from 2017 to, to earlier this year. I think, you know, when you consider the family ties, I think there's, there's a need to sit down and talk through uh, and, and things through, through dialogues. And, and I think, of course, each of them has specific policies, that, but there must be a, you know, a, a threshold, I guess you could say that, you know, that, that everyone can see eye to eye on. Uh, and so this is probably the lessons that can be learned from, from this recently concluded blockade. Thank you. Uh, Dash Abhishek wants to know whether the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen has uh, uh, influenced relations between GCC members and whether it has hindered progress uh, with regards to economic and political relations between the Gulf states. The situation in Yemen, I think that was, um, that was a lot on the headlines at the start of this year. And uh, whether it has hindered relations between Gulf states, um, at the minute, Oman is trying very, very hard to be to play a facilitate, facilitate play the role as facilitator of, of a dialogue uh, between uh, between the different fighting and warring groups, especially the Houthis, and, and and of course they would be because it is right in their backyard. I mean, the Omanis would be concerned because it's right in their in their backyard. Um, but the fact that, you know, this, uh, this, uh, this, I would say adventure, I guess, or war in Yemen by, by the Saudis and Emiratis at the start, you know, initially, as it was originally, you know, uh, uh, originally carried out, you know, now it has changed. The, the Saudis are the ones left in, left entangled in this, in this issue. And the fact that you know um, they are struggling to disentangle themselves, you know, is 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 a, is a sign of times. Is the fact that you know they have gotten themselves their, their feet too deep, and whether or not you know, you know, um, they are able to do so to get out of this um, this complicated mess uh, remains remains to be seen. But the Omanis are pushing hard. I think that's 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 been the, the news so far. And one other thing is that the fact that the UAE managed to disentangle itself from the scene, um, and 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 that of course you know came you know during the during that period when there was going to be 
uh, you know, a prospective change in the U.S. administration. And, and I think in this sense, there's always um, an eye on how the Gulf states also think strategically of themselves in the eyes of external powers such as the U.S. or China in certain instances. Thank you. Um, let me uh, follow up on a couple of geopolitical aspects, two of them with relation to Afghanistan, one in, uh, in relation to the more general reshuffle, reshuffling that we're sort of seeing in the Middle East. Uh, with regard to Afghanistan, it strikes me that we're also seeing very different approaches towards uh, uh, how to deal with the fallout of Afghanistan. Uh, Qatar obviously has come, come out of this as a winner. The UAE, to its credit, has also helped the United States take uh, thousands of, of, of Afghans in temporarily until new homes can be found for them, but has not been less so in the publicity, surprisingly, than the UAE usually is. Uh, but nonetheless, Qatar has benefited from this in, in many more ways, also given the fact that uh, the Taliban office, uh, or basically only foreign representation, is in Doha, and that's where the negotiations took place. But if you um, juxtapose the Qatar and UAE approach with what the, uh, the Saudis did in the same period, then you, it's, it's, there's an interesting contrast here, which you may want to comment on, and that is the Saudis did not help in the Afghan evacuation. In fact, what they did was send their deputy uh, defense minister to Moscow to, uh, like Egypt earlier uh, last month, to uh, sign a defense cooperation agreement with Russia. So that's one comment I'd, I'd appreciate you, you make. The other thing is the more general fallout of the uh, security fallout of the, uh, of the Afghan situation. I mean, obviously this is not increased confidence and reliability of the United States. Um, I think that if one takes a very look, careful look at Russia and China, there may be reasons from, uh, from the Gulf perspective not to have that much confidence either. So what does that mean in terms of regional alliances, relations with Israel uh, to try and compensate for essentially being stuck with the United States, but also being uncertain about the United States. And the last question I want to ask is somewhat related to that. Uh, and it was a, a phrasing that you used, which was that in the efforts uh, to seek rapprochement, whether that's um, with the uh, 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 Saudis and the Iranians or the UAE and, and, uh, and Turkey and Iran, whether we're re really talking about becoming friends or, or whether or not we're talking more, much more about what Biden talks about when he, uh, when he talks about China, which is competition and cooperation. Thanks, James. Three questions, three big questions. Yeah, actually, if I could tag on a question yep. from Asif at the end of yep. this, because it's related to that. And that is, uh, how do you look at last week's Baghdad summit in terms of the geopolitical competition and reconciliation in the Gulf? So okay. four questions. Yeah, I'm just uh, taking note of that. Right. 
Um, yeah, maybe I'll start with uh, the one that I can answer you swiftly with. Uh, I think the the one on on rapprochement and whether it's really about you know turning foes into friends or turning uh, you know whether it's just merely um, a foe but with areas of of uh, or rival but with areas that they can cooperate on. Um, I think at the minute in this stage, in this phase, really, uh, if you were to take the examples of, for example, the UAE and Turkey, for example, Saudi-Iran talks, uh, at the minute, you know, they are still rivals, you know, and, and I, I believe that, you know, the fundamentally, um, the policies of, of you know, the, in, in the bilateral re relations show that there are disagreements over um specific issues for example in the case of uh, UAE and turkey is going to be always a case of uh, ideological and islamist groups um, but at the same time they're moving to the lowest level of you know area or lowest level i guess denominator lowest denominator of uh, of, of cooperation which is the economics and when when of course the call between UAE and turkey you know focused on that you know the investments whether this money can come in on that money or on which areas and that's the lowest denominator for for them and and so if you were to say that you know whether they're exactly friends you're right you know no they're not exactly friends but they are trying to find uh an, an outlet or a channel or a platform or an area where they can both uh, collaborate on um and so that's one of the questions um but that on Baghdad, um, yes, I think there's, I believe that official summit, you know, on the official summit, there will be more being talked on the sidelines than in the, in, 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 on the official table itself. And interestingly, uh, what I noticed was, you know, and it was that during, you know, this period when, when in the lead up to the, the Baghdad summit, you know, there was, there were missiles fired from, from, from Iraq to, to Kuwait. Uh, and, and that whole episode, you know, prompted me to say, you no, know, you know, of course the, the Kuwaiti ministry spokesperson came out to say that there was no casualties and that, you know, nothing, not, not, nothing critical was, was being damaged or destroyed. But that prompted, you know, me to, to think, you know, what was going on behind the scenes? You know, was there anything was it anything to do with the 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 Baghdad summit? Was there was there a message trying to, to be made? You know, I mean, one can only speculate at this sense, but I am sure that the Baghdad summit was was a case of where rapprochement and also um, where you know there are smaller disputes or, or the intricacies of of these disputes that were being ironed out and discussed during over the course of, of this summit um, on. Uh, on Qatar, uh, I think that was one of your first questions of, um, on Qatar and Afghanistan. I think, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been the news, the fact that Qatar has been working to, 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 to position and portray itself as an uh, impartial mediator. And, and you talked, you really, you already outlined this yourself, James, that, you know, that they have an office, that they have been the ones that, that, that actually are doing something about it rather compared to to the UAE or Saudi or the Saudis, and, and the fact that they went in, I mean, the Qatari 
Sheikh Mohammed bin bin Thani actually said that you know, you know the Taliban needs to realize that it's part of the Afghan society itself, and they need to work with with the people on the ground. Um, I think that's that's a huge call, you know, for not only for humanitarian intervention but also a huge call to the Taliban to rethink, you know, their position and rethink that their position as perceived by the Afghans on the ground, which who are of course you know struggling to to get out of the country but i think this question will be better posed to our panel tomorrow morning uh james um and one and your last question i believe i think it was the second one um could you could you kindly repeat that one i think i i, sure. I the, the, the question was again uh related to the fallout of the afghan situation in terms yeah. of uh security arrangements in the gulf uh, and the fact that on the one hand, the United States is presumably going to be viewed as being less reliable. Uh, but at the other hand, when the, um, uh, the Gulf states take a, a, a close look at Russia and China, they may find that particularly Russia is no more reliable than the United States. And that therefore they are stuck with, a, uh, with the United States, like it or not, uh, and we'll have to compensate for the uncertainty and that what that would mean for, for strengthened regional alliances, particularly with Israel. Yeah. Uh, in this case, I will go and say that, you know, I, I will say that, you know, there's always going to be a hierarchy of interests um, as much as they would like to say that, you know, uh, we are trying to make friends with everyone. Well, at least some of the Gulf states, but there's always going to be a hierarchy of interest in each of their assessment of who to partner with, on which areas should we partner with, and um, in, in this case, you know, if you talk about alliances and, and you talk about external players, where you talk, you brought in uh, the U.S., uh, Russia, and China. I mean, I cannot comment directly to you know directly in, in relation. With the Afghan issue, because that's not really my my issue, my my area, but I can say that when you talk about the external players, yeah, you know, there's so much being written on strategic hedging, the fact that you want to uh, put your eggs into different baskets, but you know, the Gulf states are aware of what kind of baskets that you're putting in. For example, if you talk about China, you know, there's always going to be investments being in, in, in the picture, there's always going to be um, uh, the issue of non-interference in their specific domestic affairs. Um, and then there's also going to be uh, cybersecurity, digitalization, which I, I'm sure uh, Alex will cover in, in one, of the, you know, one of the lectures during the series. But when we talk about the US, there's always going to be a huge interest in in its role as a security guarantor of the region. So when, when, when the Gulf states are looking at those eggs in that security basket, they're going to be asking themselves, you know, um, you know are, is the US actually downsizing or like I said, is it right-sizing? And if they are indeed downsizing, then some action has to be taken. And that could possibly be why Saudi Arabia has started to make its move um, in, in, the, in, in its talks with, with Iran. 
uh, trying and the UAE trying to de-escalate de tensions with Iran, and 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 the fact that they do not want, you know, they want to see stability in this region. So there are steps if that need to be taken if that long-standing security guarantor cannot can no longer or refuses or is unwilling or is downsizing its efforts in playing its own role as a guarantor. So that's that's my opinion on that. Okay, thank you. Um, we still have a few minutes, and I would like to urge the audience to please uh, put forward your questions. In the meantime, I want to go back to what was partly a, a sort of a, a red line through through your presentation, which really had to do with uh, uh, degrees of cohesion within the GCC, uh, uh, and the fact that. I guess it's a question of half empty, glass half empty or half full, that you could argue that mo mo many of the Gulf states, perhaps even a majority, are really very cautious about the degree of integration that they are looking for. And that much of the integration that we've seen has really been low hanging fruit or domestic security at a moment that there was a shared, shared perception of domestic threats which I think, uh, you know, to some degree uh, changed with the uh, Qatar boycott. But you saw this, you know, you saw this reluctance to not to integrate too far with uh, Omani, for example, Omani resistance to militarization that predated the boycott of the um, uh, of the uh, uh, of, of Qatar and the Yemen war. Uh, it may very well be the one reason why there's a degree of hesitancy or, or different paces when it comes to, for example, a digital currency. So the question is of whether or not what, the, if whether or not what you described as, as own pace uh, or, or caution really has to do with to what degree uh, Gulf states want that kind of integration and to what degree they have or have not looked at ASEAN, which has been very cautious with uh, with integration, or the European Union, which has moved in strides towards integration. Yeah, James. I think my 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 comment on on this is that you know, if you look at the GCC timeline, when and and, and because I took you know supranationalism to compare with intergovernmentalism, and you know the GCC was conceived at the start, you know, not to have not to have supranational powers. I mean, but at the same time, at its, during its inception, it was not exactly at the extreme end of the intergovernmentalist spectrum, but today, and, and with the legacy of the 2010s and, and the numerous uh, disagreements, dispute, you know, add out in the open public, you know, despite the shaking of hands, the embrace that took place um, at Arula, you know, it, it's going to be, it's going to take some time to, to, to man fences and it's, it's going to take some time even to be to cooperate in in, 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 in an optimal intergovernmentalist setting where you have at least economics covered uh, and then now it seems to be you know uh, I think my own by by saying my own at, at their own pace yes I think they want to do it at their own terms their own and, and they want to do it at their own speed and I think the 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 restoration of relations, bilateral relations, even after Arula, you know, has taken uh, has taken place, you know, with with varying speeds and degrees, 
of course, uh, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, there has been um, the most, you know, the most prominent and also the one that has has has, has been the more holistic, I guess, up to now. The rest of them, you know, is, they're taking is is along that in different degrees and different in different uh, speeds, I guess. So so I guess when when I talk about this um, al ula uh, post al ula. Uh, relations, you know, the fact that I think I have to, to reiterate that the kinship element and some would say tribal element, you know, has 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 made the situation even harder, uh, especially when you compare between the, the elite level, track one level, and versus the track three level, which is the people on the ground who have to, to negotiate day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, day-to-day um, -day encounters and even across borders, but couldn't, and now suddenly they can, but they still have their own grievances, especially if they are connected by, by blood. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we're unfortunately nearing the end of this webinar, but before I uh, thank uh, uh, Clements and thank the audience, I wanna point out to the audience that we would like you, or we'd like to invite you to join us not for just one session in the next week, but two sessions. Obviously next week, Thursday will be the next um, uh, episode of the MEI 101 series, which is gonna uh, focus on the role of Russia, Turkey and Iran. But, and this is granted very short notice, tomorrow morning, we're gonna be looking at Afghanistan and what happens next there. Uh, and we're gonna be doing that with two people. One is on the ground, in uh, Afghanistan today. She's the director of a non-governmental organization dedicated to the education of girls and women. And she'll be able to give us a very first-hand insight into what is going on. The other is a former US State Department official, US Marine, and, who has seen combat and a, com and a former commander of a provincial reconstruction team in Afghanistan. Uh, that is gonna be tomorrow morning at 10 until uh, 11.30. Uh, please go to the MEI website uh, to register, uh, and we really look forward to seeing all of you both tomorrow morning for Afghanistan and next week for the next MEI 101 series. Clement, thank you. This was a really fascinating, extremely well-informed and well-reasoned presentation, and we've all, I believe, benefited from it. To the audience, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your questions. And we really look forward to seeing you both tomorrow and next week. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks, James.